Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Your friends, shall we bow our heads before I begin? Let us pray. O oh Lord, in your majesty and your grace, we give you thanks, Lord, for the gospel of Mark that comes to us, Lord, full of suspense, full of mystery, and a cliffhanger. May the words, Lord, that you inspire through the Holy Spirit speak to us this Easter Sunday, and may it cause us, Lord, to respond in love and action in following Christ Jesus. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning I woke up around 6 o'clock or somewhere thereabouts uh, before my alarm clock rang up, knowing full well that in many parts of Malaysia in our Methodist churches, some churches actually have a sunrise service. I know in KL, when I used to have it, uh, KL Wesley would have it in, their, uh, in the school grounds, in the Methodist boys' school, and the churches all around would gather. Uh, and as a young child, uh, when I first started attending this, all bleary-eyed, I would ask, you know, why are we going to this dark, dark place? Uh, some of my friends said, would you rather hear or go to the Churras graveyard? <laughs> because the Chinese church actually goes to the Chiras graveyard there amongst all the graves to remind themselves that the tomb no longer is a place that contains the dead. It is just a place where we place them until the day when we rise again. So as I thought about that, I was thinking about the women. It says there uh, that these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go to Jesus' body. When the Sabbath of over, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week. Now, the Sabbath day for the Jewish people is from Friday evening to Saturday evening, right? So the day after Sabbath would be Sunday, the first day of the week, and very early in the morning. So I, I put a picture here of a pathway uh, early in the morning as people walk, knowing that as we journey along, along this way, 
uh, we enter into the scene and we walk along with these women. Now, have you ever thought about what it would be like if you were one of these women? If you're one of these women that is walking along the path, you're carrying spices for embalming, and in another account in the gospel, almost 70 pounds of it. So divided between maybe the three of them, uh, close to about 20 pounds each. That's quite a fair bit of uh, spices that they're carrying. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, who had, in a way, given his tomb uh, for Jesus to use, had also, in a way, wrapped up Jesus and, and put some spices on him. But because of the urgency of that day, uh, the Sabbath day was approaching, and uh, they had to do this very quickly, so he may have done a small job. Uh, if you actually have your Bibles open with you, as we were reading just now, the last verse of verse, 40, uh, verse 47, before going into chapter 16, says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. So it's the continuation of the story. Joseph had gone and quietly asked for the body of, uh, of uh, Jesus. And Joseph was a prominent person. He was a person who also sat in the Sanhedrin council. And so for Joseph to come and say, can I have the body of this person whom we just crucified, one whom the Sanhedrin council has said, he is a, he's not our king, he's not ours, we want him crucified. So for Joseph to come and say, I like his body, and not only that, use his own tomb and bury Jesus here. Joseph is in a way cancelling out all his rights and privileges and his affiliation with the council, the Sanhedrin council, highest religi religious and possibly even political power within Jerusalem. So Joseph has done this. He has put Jesus in this tomb but these women are following him. And so at the ending of it, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And in verse 1 of chapter 16, when the Sabbaths were there, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices. Now, if you have been reading along with the rest of the church in our daily reading, you will notice that from chapter 14, or maybe even 13, 14, 15, all the way to 16, in a whole long 16 chapters, there is no mention of women, very little, almost non-existent as women as disciples. But when the passion narrative is about to begin, we hear about Jesus being anointed by a woman who breaks an alabaster jar, a very expensive jar of perfume, and then pours it all over Jesus and all the, all the disciples looking and saying, you know, what a waste of perfume. More importantly, their response was that perfume could have been sold and the money be given to the poor. The narratives actually say all Judas wanted was he wanted the money because he was in charge of the money. But what Jesus said was, leave her be. She has done a beautiful thing. It is extravagant, expensive, all-out, worship. And Jesus said, she has prepared me for my burial. And everywhere the gospel is heard, she will be mentioned. That at the gospel, people are reminded that a woman, a woman prepared Jesus for his burial and gave extravagant worship. 
And right at the end, in this account as well, women are there. So women, please give yourself a hand. <laughs> you do a great job in persevering. Now, we realize that often in our narrative of the church, we always say Jesus was deserted. Everybody abandoned him. Let's read that again. <laughs> because at the cross, the women were there. The only other person we know who was a guy who was there was John. And John was told, Behold your mother and behold your son. So the women were there. And in Mark's gospel, he is writing not so much about uh, a gender in particular, but he says one of the least of the community because women had no rights in that time. And so once again, Jesus does this and God does this. He breaks in into a, a kingdom and his announcement is first seen by shepherds, the least, the ones we don't think about. The apostles which he gathered to him are not the high and the mighty, they are shepherds fishermen, tax collectors, the ordinary folk. And he calls them, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So once again, when all the tragedy is over and they are still feeling sad, they're walking towards the grave, they're carrying these spices and this is the Sunday after sunrise. And they ask themselves, who will roll the stone away from the tomb? Now, if you're trying to, to gain a picture, what does this uh, tomb look like? Some historical archaeological information presents to us that uh, the entrance to the tomb is normally small. It's quite small. You, you need to crouch in order to go in. But the rock is normally a circular rock, roughly about four to six feet in diameter depending on the size of the entrance. Okay, so you try and imagine this, four to six feet in diameter and one foot thick. Okay, so if you're trying to figure out how much would it likely weigh, if you were to get something that's about four feet in diameter, one, fit, uh, one foot thick, that's approximately 1,000 pounds, one ton. Okay. So they've calculated roughly it might be anywhere between one ton to about three tons. One which a woman or even three women on her own would have great difficulty removing. So in fact, very unlikely. They're carrying all this stuff and then they have to do this. Now, is it possible for anyone to open the tomb from the inside? And the answer, if you've just been flogged to death and you've lost all your blood, um, not likely. Why do we say this? Because there are people who argue, well, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. Maybe he woke up from his coma and, you know, opened the tomb from the inside. Well, here's another uh, fact found from archaeology. The stone is easy to put into place, almost impossible, unless you're doing it from the outside to actually reset it back open. There is a groove. So if you see this particular picture from the right to the left, there's a slope and a groove. What is required is for one person to basically take a stick and use leverage to just push it a little. It goes over a little uh, bump and then it falls into a groove. 
So for a person to try and lift it up from its original place and put it back, you are actually going to push it up a slope and try and do that from the inside where there is no handhold because the door prevents you from getting to the stone. It has to be opened from the outside and it has to be opened with huge strength because you're pushing upwards. This tomb was meant to be used once in this particular case. If it were to be reused again, it would not be easy. It's possible, but not be easy. Again, what is utmost on these women's mind as they're walking along this path and the sun is slowly rising and in the darkness, they are talking amongst themselves who will roll the stone away. And the text basically says that the moment that they looked up, or rather in the Greek itself, it says when their eyes were able to open. A way of saying when they could finally see, they recognized that the answer had already been given. The tomb was already open. But Mark, the ever amazing writer, doesn't say who does it. He just says the tomb was open. There is this interaction. As they see this tomb open, they come into the, into the tomb and there is this interaction that happens with a young man. Let me read from verse 5 first. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Now, Mark is giving a fair bit of detail, although we don't see it so well. Uh, it's a young man dressed in white and normally in all of the texts in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when you see this young man in white, it normally means angel, messenger of God. And he sits on the right-hand side. Normally, right side good, left side not so good. Cultural thing. He's standing on the right side and they were alarmed. That's how verse 5 ends. They were alarmed. But this alarmed is a, a, a big word in terms of don't be frightened, don't be shocked, don't be alarmed. In the same way that the shepherds, when the angels came upon them and the angels were singing Hosanna in the highest, they were shocked, terrified, alarmed because they had encountered God in His glory. And so we have this similar situation. An angel has come and appeared in the tomb and these people are shocked and stupefied. They are in abject fear. And the angel's response, very typical of other angels' situations, is don't be alarmed. In Malaysia, we would say, you know, chillax, batanang, <laughs> calm down. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, this is Mark's way of talking about the gospel. Everywhere in the gospel, we always talk about Jesus who was crucified, dead, buried, rose again on the third day. And so we see that in its elements. When it says that Christ died for our sins, uh, which we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Mark says, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was 
crucified. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, He was buried. Mark chapter, uh, verse 6 says, See the place where they laid him. He was raised on the third day. He has risen. He is not here. So key in this is, He has risen. He is not here. If He's not here, where is He? That's Mark's unwritten statement. Mark is a wonderful writer in the sense that he leaves you in dramatic suspense. He doesn't fill in the gaps for you. And as a reader, you need to start filling the gaps. And the moment you start filling in the gaps, you are interacting with the text. The text continues. The young man says, but go. This word, go, in the Greek uh, comes from this root word, upago. He tells his disciples and Peter. Now, I want you to remember, in the book of Mark, Mark is one of the most uncomfortable books to read if you're a disciple. He says the disciples are stupid, blinkered, blind. They do not understand. They bicker amongst each other. And in the words of Mickey, in our drama, they are all failures. They mess up big time, many times. Even when they're told to do things, they don't do what they say. Peter comes and says, I will never leave you. Even unto death, I will follow you. And Jesus responds, before the cock crows twice this morning, you will deny me. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells them, one who has dipped his bread together with me in this bowl, will betray me. And they'll go around scratching their heads. Is it I? Surely it's not me. And so Mark presents a gospel very different from Matthew, Luke, and John. Luke and John always say it's so loving, it's so comfortable, and everything is complete. They're so joyful. But Mark presents them as a bunch of people who really do not get on with Jesus' program. But one thing he does say about Mark, saying about the disciples, they follow him. And Jesus says, he is going ahead of you. Jesus is going ahead of you. Now, that word I wrote there, pi, rho, uh, omicron, alpha, gamma, omega, proago is the word. It's a very special word in the Greek because it's not about going ahead, is the same word, proago, is the same word that we use to talk about a general at the head of the army leading the army, of the king who is at the head of his people going ahead, of a shepherd that has gone ahead and the sheep are following. And that's the idea that they get. That's what this disciples and the women who are the first to witness this demonstration to them, that in spite of all their failures, Jesus is telling them, especially Peter. Peter is mentioned specifically. Why? Because Peter is heartbroken. He's heartbroken because he professed the highest love and would be willing to lay his life down. But when it came to the crunch, he failed. And he wept bitter tears. 
I wonder how many of us are in that same situation. We all aspire to be good people. We all want to be God-fearing people. We all want to be followers of Christ Jesus. But how many times when it comes to the crunch, when we're called to be salt and light, we fail. Fail absolutely miserably. We cave in to corruption. We cave in to threats. We cave in to selfish greed. And we feel that we have betrayed Jesus. We've abandoned Him. And we do this almost on a daily basis. Jesus doesn't stand there and say, you know, let's, let's emo a while. <laughs> let's go and grieve all this. A friend was telling me recently, you know, um, the disciples were emoing in their room whilst the women went and sorted out Jesus. <laughs> we can mourn and we can wallow in our pit of self-despair. But Jesus is saying, He's going ahead of you. Jesus is speaking through this angelic body. Go. In the same way, He said, Go, make disciples of all the nations. All authority has been given unto me. Therefore, I send you. Go, make disciples. This is not one an active uh, dwelling and staying in our pit of despair. It is always an active moving forward. Go. Everywhere in the Gospel of Mark, it has always been, and then Jesus did. And then Jesus did. He was always on the go. And likewise, even now, He moves. Do you know, Jesus had in a way, predicted that this would happen. In, John, uh, in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, he says, You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Why Galilee? Do you ever wondered why Galilee? We, we sometimes read different accounts and we, we kind of forget where we are. Let me ask you a question. Where were the disciples during this time? Jerusalem or Galilee? They're in Jerusalem. And in, in, if you've been reading the, uh, the account of, of Luke, it is most likely uh, that they're in the house of uh, uh, John Mark. Okay, uh, John Mark's mother's house in the upper room. And so after, after Jesus had been crucified and all the disciples are sore afraid for their lives, they were cowering in fear and they gathered back in their room in Jerusalem. Jesus is telling them, don't hang out there. Come back to Galilee. Where is Galilee? Galilee is the place where God first called them. Galilee is the place where the ministry was spread and where the gospel was received. Galilee was the place where they were called to follow him. And so they regathered. In the book of John, this is how we know that Peter and the rest of the disciples went back fishing. You don't fish in Jerusalem. You go fishing back in Galilee, next to the Sea of Galilee. So they listened and they responded and they went back. But let me tell you this. And this is where Mark is, is amazing 
as the gospel story. Verse 8 ends, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And some of you might be responding, hang on, hang on. Um, didn't the other gospels say that Mary went back, they ran, and, and Peter ran to the tomb and they saw that, uh, and, and one of them saw Jesus? Yes, those are in those accounts. But in Mark's account, this is how he wanted to, end, uh, to, to finish his statement, his witness of what happened. That the women were trembling and afraid. Why? Because they had encountered a phenomenon of God. They were sore afraid. They ran out of the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. But history tells us and the fact that you are here and you profess Christ to be Lord and Master tells us that the women overcame their fear. They did what Jesus said they ought to do. That if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. They overcame their fear. They denied themselves. They took up their cross because the moment they speak about Christ again, it means that they have a death sentence hanging over them. And they went forth back to the disciples and they professed Jesus as Lord. And Peter came running. We know that history now. But Mark is writing to a people who will one day not have the same benefit of being able to visit the tomb, see this angelic person, or be able to see Jesus appearing and showing his hands and his sign. Mark is writing to a people who live in ambiguity. You know, Mark's ending seems to lead to a dead end. It doesn't record Jesus' uh, rendezvous with his disciples. He just ends it there. And in fact, if you were to read Mark, and if you have a red-letter Bible, right, if you have a red-letter text Bible and you read it, the last words that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark is, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the last narration at the cross is the comment of the centurion who looks up this, a Gentile looking up at this man and seeing how Jesus dies, says, surely this man is the Son of God. That's how Mark, in a way, ends the passion narrative and he ends with great suspense. All the women are scared, all the men are scared and the only thing that is given to them is a promise. What is the promise? The promise is, go. He has gone ahead of you in Galilee. You will meet him there. And so the, the, the paradox of this is, do I stay in the tomb? No. The tomb are for the dead. The living, you do not find the living amongst the dead. They were then left not just with mental contemplation or emotional wrangling, they were left with the question, how then do I respond with this? They were told to go. Let me bring this to an end. The gospel ending has no sweet reunions. The way Mark ends it, and in particular, I have taken a shorter ending of Mark, verses 1 to 8. 
If you read your NIV Bible, it will have a little commentary there that verses 9 onwards may, come from, may have come from somewhere else. But most scholars now agree that verse 8 is most likely the proper ending. And although it ends in a dramatic cliffhanger, Mark is using it in the most subtle of ways. But firstly, let's take this away. There is no sweet reunion. There is no hugging together and saying, oh Jesus, you're alive and now that I've seen you, I'm going to respond. And for many of us, that's the ending that we get. We're called to believe in a supernatural spiritual God. We are called to believe in what we do not see. Faith in a thing that cannot be held on to. And yet we have this relationship with this God. And so there's no sweet reunion. One cannot meet Jesus at the place where they have laid him. Death cannot hold him, and God is not the God of the dead, entombed in shrines. Can you imagine if Jesus was there and everyone knew this is where it is? Every visit to Jerusalem would be, here's where Jesus was laid, and he died, and that's where he stayed. But no. He is God of the living, and the God of the living doesn't stay in a tomb. He's on the move. He's where his people are. Secondly, there is no direct evidence in terms of a witness statement that says, I saw and I touched. Not like the Thomas that we have in the other accounts. Not like the other accounts in the 1 Corinthians that say he appeared to another 300. But we are living evidence that that happened. So Mark is saying there may be times when you do not have this direct evidence. Mark's gospel does not offer proof to those who, like the accusers at the cross, say, show us and we will believe you. Do you know how many of us say, Jesus, if you're really real, show us, then we will believe you. There's no direct evidence given. But if we ask where the Christ is, Mark's answer that he is always on ahead of us. He is heading on to new lands, to new places. Go make disciples. Jesus is to be found today, not in our theologizing, but in obedience to his command. What is the point of knowing, memorizing scriptures, saying love one another if you do not love one another? He is to be found in going to be where he is. So brothers and sisters, if you, if you are at this point, you know, I, I, and you have this, I, re, I, I, I don't know whether to accept Jesus because the evidence is not really there. What Mark is saying, you will find evidence and proof when you follow him, which means go where he is. Thirdly, this ending has no explanation of the resurrection. But the women indirectly receive an answer. They receive an answer to their earlier question. Who will roll the stone away? But it's, the answer is not just about Jesus. The answer is also about us. Who will roll the stone away from our graves? And the answer that the women received indirectly, God, God alone. Because no other power could have moved that stone. God did it. Jesus' resurrection destroys the power of death over human beings. 
And that's a huge stone. That's a massive rock. Not only that, God has replaced our hearts of stone and given us a heart of flesh that will beat for him. This message of Jesus, this explanation of the resurrection is again, not in terms of dwelling over the evidences, but also over the fact that resurrection transforms a hopeless end into an endless hope. How then are we called to respond? Three ideas I'd like to live with you. One is the ambiguity of life but the certainty of our salvation. I appreciate our Sunday school earlier on putting on that drama. They deal with issues that are not easy. Being Christian is not a one where we have happy reunions all the time and that Jesus is hooray yippee. We are stuck in situations where Mark actually gives an account where the disciples struggle again and again and again. Am I doing the right thing? Have I said the right thing? I've made such a big boo-boo out of this. But what is the response that's given to them? The response to them is that we have an ambiguity of life but a certainty of our salvation. I'd like to, to think about that. Our life right now is ambiguous. We don't know when evil will strike. But Christ has done it all. There is a certainty to our salvation. Secondly, we live with failure. In spite of the fact that all the disciples failed again and again and again, even all the way to the end, when the women failed to do what God called them to do, God has done it. He didn't depend on them to remove the stone. He didn't depend on them to do what was needed on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, in our failures, in our brokenness, in our sin, Christ calls you and says, follow me. I have done it. Follow me. Here again, this command that Jesus has said through his angel, go, Jesus has gone ahead of you, Follow him. How will we know for sure that what they say is true? Will we be willing to stake our lives on that truth? And will we demand something more than God before we will make a commitment? The answer for you, my friend, if you are seeking that out, is go, follow your Lord. He has gone ahead of you. Let us pray.